Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Section 10 of Double Cross by Wilfred Douglas Newton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. Part 4 and 5. Chapter 3. Part 4. Clement decided that the next item of importance was to arrange for his talk with Heloise. Although he was quite willing, so strong was his case, to say all that he meant to say in front of Meduse and even Mr. Newberg if necessary, he thought that a ten minutes undistracted conversation with Heloise would give him a better chance of stating all the facts firmly and finally. How to fix that up was the problem. As he was deciding whether he would risk telephoning to her room, his eye fell on his wristwatch. It was close to lunchtime, and at once it came to him that not only did he want lunch himself, but that Heloise, being human as well as a goddess, would want hers. He smiled suddenly as he saw how things might be managed, went down to the first floor where the great dining-room was, and sat in a modestly remote seat in the lounge. Without being seen himself, he could watch everybody who came to or went from the dining-room. He had about twenty minutes to wait. Probably Heloise was telling the innocent Meduse that there had been a letter from her sycamus agent at the Poste Restante, and that they had perhaps to stay a few more days in Quebec, and the reason why. But after that wait they both came. From a safe distance Clement saw the captain of the waiters lead them to a table, noticed that the room was not full, and that there were plenty of places at the end. Satisfied about this he went downstairs. In the lobby he selected a form, wrote on it, tore it up wrote on another, and then apparently thought better of it. But whereas he threw the first into the waste-basket, the second he folded rather cleverly under cover of that action, and kept it in his hand. Then, having convinced all about him that he wasn't sending a message, he waited until he saw a page go upstairs with a caller's form, went up himself, and waited at the turn of the stairs for the boy's return. The boy returned alone, fortunately. Clement snapped him up. "'Want to earn a dollar?' he asked. "'Bet your life,' said young Canada. "'Take this call form to Miss Maydew Smythe. "'She and another lady are sitting at the fifth table for two on the window-side. "'Call her name, please, but that's where she is. "'Give the form to her and come away quick.' "'Yep,' said the page, grinning. "'And you don't know where it came from to anybody, even the lady herself.' "'I got you,' said the page, grinning more expansively. "'He took the dollar and the call form.' He went upstairs. Clement went after him. The page went into the dining-room. Clement stepped back quietly and swiftly into a deep passage where the male diners deposited their coats. He heard the boy calling out, "'Miss Smith! Miss Medusa Smith!' 
In seventy-five seconds, Miss May Du Smythe came by the end of the coat passage at a great pace. Clement had thought she would be swift. What he had written on the call form, in anybody's handwriting, was, Must see you for ten minutes, at once, Joe. The companion might have argued about that handwriting, but how was she to know that Joe did not have to disguise it? Clement had banked on that idea, and he had scored. Miss Maydew Smythe was no sooner out of vision than he was in the dining-room, alongside Heloise's table, speaking to Heloise. "'Miss Ray's, he said, "'will you give me an opportunity to talk privately?' "'Mr. Seaton!' Heloise's tone was affronted. Obviously she resented his speaking to her, but obviously, too, the extreme publicity of the place robbed her attitude of some of its effectiveness. It is to be feared that Clement had taken that into his calculations when he had decided on this plan. "'Miss Ray's, he said, "'I want to speak to you, privately, for no more than ten minutes, and I want you to understand that it is only the urgency of the matter that makes me force myself upon you.' She hesitated, looking up at him, her vivid face showing the keenness of her emotions. "'Do you remember saying that you believed I'd be honest even against my own interests?' he asked. "'Yes,' she said. I did say that, but I am honest now. Will you believe that? The girl looked at him quietly for a moment. I believe that, she said. And will you give me that chance of speaking to you alone? The girl bent her eyes to the table. She was thinking quickly. Tomorrow morning I will be in the writing room at half-past nine. Will that do? It will not be easy to manage it before then. It will do admirably. Thank you, said Clement. He left her and went to the back of the room where there were a number of empty tables. As he sat and ate his lunch, the companion, Meduse, came in. She was flustered. He was even scared. Clement was amused, but he did not think it mattered very much. She would not, he thought, mention the reason for her leaving Heloise, though actually there was no reason. Neither did he think that Heloise would tell her of the appointment she had made. His insistence upon privacy the way he had snatched at the chance to speak to her alone at her table, the way he had left her, but all tell Heloise that the companion Meduse was excluded from the secret. And even if she did tell, it would matter very little. Clement would have his interview with Heloise no later than the next morning, for Heloise would see to it that it happened, and nothing very much could occur until that time. The rogues could not whisk her away against her will. They had to move delicately, always. And after he had spoken to Heloise, nothing at all could occur. He would have settled with Mr. Newberg and his gang once and for all. He finished his lunch after the two ladies, watched them out of the dining room, then he got his hat and stick and walked out through Quebec. He would take a look at this glue merchant's in the Sue Algonquin. It was best to be well up in every particular. Very cheerfully he walked through the Place d'Arme and went down the steep street of the mountain to the huddled network of passageways. It can hardly be called roads, the crowded under the rocky scarp of the Grand Battery. He was feeling good, as the Canadians would say. Why not? Hadn't he all the factors for victory surely in his grasp? Possibly he would have felt less good if he had been aware of a little scene between the companion Meduse and the massive Mr. Newberg that was even then taking place. End of Chapter 3, Part 4 Chapter 3, Part 5 both Heloise and the companion had gone up to their rooms, a prey to emotions. Heloise's emotion was not altogether unpleasant. 
She was agitated at the prospect of an intimate talk with Clement Seaton on the morrow, but like all people who trample on their feelings in order to bolster up their pride, she felt relief that this condition of chilly aloofness between them was coming to an end. As Maydew Smythe had told Mr. Newberg, Heloise did not know exactly what her feelings were towards Clement Seaton, but she did know enough to realize that a renewal of their old companionship would be an extraordinarily pleasant thing. Maydew Smythe's agitation was of a different order. There was fear in it. She had received an imperative message from one of the conspirators. He wanted to see her in the hotel lobby. That fact in itself was disturbing. She hurried swiftly to the lobby, and there was no Joe. Nobody was there wanting her. What did it mean? Had Joe been frightened away? Or, or was it some ruse? She was puzzled, scared. She felt that her own wits were not capable of dealing with this matter. She left Heloise, grappling with the feminine complications of preparing for a walk, in her room, passed swiftly across her own. She slipped ajar her door of the bathroom that led to Mr. Newberg's room and scratched stealthily on the inner door. That was the signal. She repeated it several times. It was not answered. Mr. Newberg was not in his room. She half expected that. That might be the reason why Joe had sent in to her. She closed her own of these double bathroom doors, and her anxiety was increased. She must see and speak with Mr. Newberg. It might be a matter that did not brook of delay. Her agitation developed steadily until both ladies got down to the lobby again, then with a gasp of relief she said, "'Oh, there's Mr. Newberg. Do you mind, Louise? I do want to speak to him about something before it slips out of my memory.' She went across to Mr. Newberg, who rose from his chair and bowed with all the affability of a mere acquaintance. She said in quite an ordinary voice, as though discussing the weather, "'I am going to give you a slip of paper. It seems important.' Can you take it from me without being seen? Mr. Newberg, with all the charm of a genial man of the world and all the acuteness of a master rogue, bowed at once, led her to the magazine counter to the right of the lobby. My dear Maydeuce, as I select a guidebook for you, lean across me to reach those postcards, then you can drop your paper. The call form that was supposed to have come from the man Joe was dropped. Mr. Newberg picked it up with a guidebook. He read it. He opened the guidebook, as though in search for some locality, pointed to a page with his fat finger, and said, "'When did you get this, Maydeuce?' "'It was brought to me by a page just after I sat down to lunch.' "'Huh! And you went out at once, and Joe—he was not there, of course. He would not be there. This is a thing he would not do.' "'He was not there,' said Maydeuce. "'And when you came back from this false call, how was the girl?' "'She was alone, as I left her.' She seemed the same. She said nothing to you? About anybody speaking to her, I mean. Nothing at all. And the Englishman? Did you see him in the dining room? No, I did not see him. But then I did not look very keenly. Surely the Englishman does not know about Joe. Somebody knows about Joe, said Mr. Newberg. Somebody knows so much about Joe that he recognized that the name was enough to get you away from Miss Heloise into the lobby at a run. Who do you think would pull off a trick like that, my mild Maydeuce? But the Englishman cannot know about Joe, said the woman sullenly. Certainly this is your day for being triumphantly dull, my dear. This Englishman has bewitched you. But how could he know about Joe? Ah, my mild one, that is a thing that even I cannot tell you without finding out. 
it is to be found out. Now go back to the girl with this guidebook, tell her the pleasant Mr. Newberg has recommended it as the best of its kind, and remember that if your brain has turned into wool, you have the support of mine, which is particularly acute. That may restore and stimulate your wits. When the two ladies had gone out, Mr. Newberg sat and smoked and considered this unexpected happening deeply. His was a quite exceptional brain, and he had mastery over his thoughts and his memories. It was while he was going over his memories that the smoke of his cigar suddenly ceased to puff. That was the only sign exhibited by his impressive, placid, and genial bulk. At once he rose indolently, walked across the lobby to the reception desk. He asked in his affable way if he could see the room bookings. He looked through them. He stopped when he came to the name Clement Seaton. He stopped with reason, for he saw that Clement's room was next to his own. He stared at that number for a moment, said thank you very politely to the reception clerk, and mounted to the gallery on which his room stood. He went not merely to his own room, but walked round the corner of the gallery to the door of Clement Seaton's room. As he stood there regarding it contemplatively, the chambermaid passed by. He looked at her, or rather across her shoulder, with that smile which was quite charming, but had not the slightest tinge of human emotion in it, and he said, there is, I think, a blind in that room which is making noises in the wind. It destroys my nap. I have knocked on the door, but the occupant of the room is not there, apparently. Would it be asking too much to go in and pull up that blind, so that I can have my beauty sleep undisturbed? He backed his appeal with the weight of a half-dollar piece. The girl smiled and opened the door. With a polite, thanks enormously, Mr. Newberg slipped away from her with his extraordinary swiftness. He went into his own room. He opened his one of the double doors between his room and Clement Seedon's bathroom. He listened at the door. He did not hear as well as Clement had heard, for the bathroom was between him and the Englishman's room. But he heard. He heard the movements of the chambermaid, heard her rattling at the windows. When the chambermaid came round the corner of the gallery to ask if it was all right now, he was at his door beaming, but this time perhaps with a more natural good humor. Yes, that is satisfactory, very satisfactory. And indeed he thought it was. End of chapter 3, part 5 End of section 10